Today's episode is brought to you by Scorpion Fish by Natalie Bacopoulos, which Claire V. Watkins calls a riveting, elegant novel keenly observed in the manner of Elena Ferrante and Rachel Cusk. Set in contemporary Athens, the novel follows academic Mira as she returns to her childhood home. It's a story of how and where we find our true selves, in the pull of the sea, the sway of late-night bar music, the risk and promise of art, and in the sparkling electric summertime charge of endless possibility. Says Jesmyn Ward, Scorpion fish dazzles fierce and tender in turn. The clarity of its insights about love and loss and grief will break you and remake you. Savor it and it will leave you changed. Scorpion Fish is out on July 7th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Today's episode is with an author I've long wanted to interview. One of the first people I reached out to once I was no longer only doing in-person interviews the poet, essayist, and translator, Philip Metris. In anticipation of our conversation, I went ahead and collected many of his past books, from his translations of the Russian poets Arseny Tarkovsky and Lev Rubinstein, to his essay collection, The Sound of Listening, to many of his past poetry collections. In the process of doing so, I requested a copy of his chapbook, Returning to Yaffa, from Diode Editions, not realizing that the chapbook is actually part of his most recent collection, Shrapnel Maps, as well, the collection we were about to discuss. So I want to get this beautiful chapbook into the hands of an interested reader. So if you are a supporter of the show at any level, or become a supporter of the show and message me through Patreon by July 5th, my cat Ewok will assess who is most worthy and send along a copy of Returning to Yaffa to You. We discussed this sequence of poems as part of today's main discussion, but here's the brief description of the chapbook itself. Returning to Yaffa is a docu-poetic inquiry into the mystery of what happened to Palestine's most populous city and its municipal archives during the Nakba in 1948. Working with vintage postcards, Haganah leaflets, and personal photographs, returning to Yaffa tells the story of one former resident, Nahida Halabi Gordon, a Palestinian who fled her native land during 1948 and who periodically returns to visit her childhood home, confiscated by Israel after the war. Philip Metris was also super generous with his addition to the bonus audio archive, creating a Philip Metris sampler of sorts. He reads five poems from previous collections, as well as three of his translations. To find out how to get access to the bonus audio and about other perks and gifts you can get from becoming a supporter of Between the Covers, head over to patreon.com slash Between the Covers. Or if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so at tinhouse.com slash support. Enjoy today's program with Philip Metris. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical 
effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the poet, essayist, and translator Philip Metris, with an MA in English, an MFA in poetry, and a PhD in English from Indiana University. Metris is professor of English and director of the Peace, Justice, and Human Rights Program at John Carroll University in University Heights, Ohio. Philip Metris is the author of 10 books, including the Beatrice Howley Award-winning collection Sand Opera and three Arab-American Book Award winners, the 2012 winner in poetry Abu Ghraib Arias, the 2014 winner in poetry A Concordance of Leaves, and the 2019 winner in nonfiction The Sound of Listening, Poetry as Refuge and Resistance. He's also the author of Behind the Lines, War Resistance Poetry on the American Home Front Since 1941, and teaches a course on the literature of war, and another on Israeli and Palestinian literatures as well. His poems have been translated into Arabic, Farsi, Polish, Russian, and Tamil, and Metris is himself a translator, including the books I Burned at the Feast, Selected Poems of Arseny Tarkovsky, Catalog of Comedic Novelties, Selected Poems of Lev Rubinstein, and A Kindred Orphanhood, Selected Poems of Sergei Gondolevsky. Philip Metris's writing has appeared in Best American Poetry, has garnered two NEA fellowships, the Lannan Literary Fellowship, the Adrian Rich Award for Poetry, the Panheim Translation Grant, and most recently, a Guggenheim. Phil Metris is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his latest book of poetry, Shrapnel Maps, just out from Copper Canyon Press. Library Journal says of Shrapnel Maps, Lebanese-American Metris offers verse at once intimate and politically taught as he explores the conundrum of Israel-Palestine today. Metris portrays a beautiful but damaged landscape where deep-rooted political realities dominate where a man finds history holding him at passport control and an activist inserts the inked ribbon of herself between the black roller of history and the alphabetic metal legs of soldiers' rifles. Ohio Poet Laureate Dave Lucas adds, these seeking, longing poems attempt to reconcile past and present, word and image, the impulse to speak and the need to listen. More than that, they attempt to reconcile people and cultures. Philip Metris writes poems that again and again help us to believe in that beautiful possibility. Lastly, poet, theologian, and conflict mediator Padre Gotuma says of Shrapnel Maps, Half dream, half nightmare, all real. 
filled with the remnants of what people hope for and what they are willing to do and everything that remains afterwards. It's a confrontation to identity, and it dares to conjugate love as a defiance to the capacity of violence. Elegant and devastating, compelling and complex. Welcome to Between the Covers, Philip Metris. I'm so grateful to be with you, David. And that uh, introduction was magnificent and uh, humbling. <laughs> Strangely, it doesn't sound like my experience of scuffling about and trying to find the right words for things. So, Well, one of the main juxtapositions in your past book, Sand Opera, is between the horrors of Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo and the birth of your daughters. This juxtaposition happens in the middle of the book, deep in the book, in the heart of the book. And it does many things, but one of the things that it offers is a counterbalance to the horrors that we experience, a sort of a reprieve. And your latest book also has a juxtaposition, but this time between your life here in the United States and the situation in Israel and Palestine. But this juxtaposition feels more, to me, more uncanny and also more central and complicated than in Sand Opera because your reality here does not just provide a contrast to the reality there, but also is sometimes echoing or reinforcing or contradicting or complicating. And it even breaks down the sense that Israel-Palestine is quote-unquote over there at all. Um, So I guess I wanted to start there because you start the book there. We don't open the book in Gaza or the West Bank or in Jerusalem. We open the book in in University Heights, Ohio, in the Orthodox Jewish neighborhood where you live. So talk to us about how you ended up living in this neighborhood and then the role that you see your experiences living among Orthodox Jews as an Arab American plays in, in shrapnel maps. Well, I'm sitting in my second floor, um, on the second floor of my house, and watching my neighbors right now um, heading to to and from shul, synagogue. We have about, oh, I don't know, at least five temples down the street from of, of a variety of modern Orthodox traditions, and um, people are wearing really festive clothes today. Um, and uh, so my university where I teach, John Carroll University, is literally a 10-minute walk from my house. And it, it just made a lot of sense to, to, to find a house close by. I, I love my commute. It's, um, it's so great. It's actually too short. Can, can you imagine <laughs> a commute that's too short? Uh, in any case, I um, found a, a great little house here close by. And um, I think that at the time when we moved in, it was perhaps a little bit less predominantly Orthodox, but now it's increasingly so. Just encountering people from the, the Jewish Orthodox tradition has been one of marvels and mystery and sometimes vexation. Um, it's, it's marvelous because the communities that are situated here are so vibrant and so... Um, so alive and so visible on the street, just to see people, you know, constantly greeting each other, you know, good Shabbos uh, all the time. And, uh, and that sense of the close knittedness of a community is um, at our, in our day and age is, is so remarkable and unusual. And there's something just really appealing about that. Um, it's also strange because, you know, I'm, I'm not part of the community, nor do I have really any, um, 
any access points in, into understanding um, the stories and the traditions that, that bind this community together. And that's where some of the vexation comes in. And you can see all of these dimensions actually in the poems, right? When my kids, particularly my eldest daughter, was playing with some of her the neighbors, there was this remarkable diversity of, um, what's the word, of not only people, but how they would interact with her um, from total openness to, to guardedness and, and uh, defensiveness. And, um, you know, the, the fact of my Arab Americanness is, is mostly invisible. And um, as such, that's also part of the story. I'm not marked in a way that my neighbors are marked by their clothes and by, um, you know, just by their, their way of life. So that, that's, that's part of the story of the book. And, and so interestingly, and I think that for some readers, they might dispute some of the parallelisms that I'm wanting to make or that some of the poems invite us to think about between relationships in this neighborhood and relationships in Israel-Palestine. Um, and, and, and in some respects, I understand why there would be um, questions about those, na those metaphors. But in some ways, they're just deeply human metaphors, which is how do we relate to our neighbors? Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this a lot during the, um, the beginning of the pandemic, when, just thinking about, oh, who's, which neighbors could I count on? Which neighbors needed something? Which neighbors did I have phone numbers for? And which did I not? Did, did I not have phone numbers for? And uh, the longing for that sense of connection and community. So that's, that's a bit of a long answer, but uh, does that... That's no, a great does answer. Does that get to yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was hoping maybe, I don't normally have people read this early, but I was thinking we could just open with your first two poems, One Tree and Two Neighbors, as a way to, because that's the way you sort of orient us to the project. And we can orient our listeners today to that and then, and then ask questions that come out of hearing the poems. Sure. So this is the first poem, One Tree. They wanted to tear down the tulip tree, our neighbors, last year. It throws a shadow over their vegetable patch, the only tree in our backyard. We said no. Now they've hired someone to chainsaw an arm, the crux on our side of the fence. And my wife in tousled hair and morning sweats marches to stop the carnage mid-limb. It reminds her of her childhood home, a shady place to hide. She recites her litany of no returns. Minutes later, the neighbors emerge. The worker points to our unblinded window. I wanna say, it's not me. Slide out of view behind a wall of cupboards, ominous breakfast table, steam of tea, our two young daughters now alone. I want no trouble. Must I fight for my wife's desire for yellow blooms when my neighbor's tomatoes will stunt and blight in shade? Always the same story. Two people, one tree, not enough land or light or love. As with the baby brought to Solomon, someone must give. Dear neighbor, it's not me. Bloom shadowed, light deprived. They lower the chainsaw again. Two neighbors. In Cleveland, 
snow so thick it looked as if it were not falling but hovering. I shuffled along the snow-banked side of Washington Boulevard, halfway to campus, when a suburban scrolled past, slowed. The driver's window lowered to a woman in a copper wig. In a Brooklyn accent, she asked if I needed a ride. I didn't know her from Eve. She was brave or kind or both. I'm almost there, I replied. She said, you'll probably get there before I do. We laughed together in the falling snow as she rolled up her window. Into the minibus near Jerusalem, the young Palestinian climbed. He wore a pen in his Oxford, black hair parted clean. We got to talking where we were from. He hoped, he said, to study engineering in Cleveland. The minivan braked. We pulled out passports. A soldier barked something we couldn't follow. The young man said something we couldn't follow, his hands dancing empty in the air. The soldier grabbed his wrists. We pulled away. We couldn't follow, and he disappeared, surrounded by three soldiers, as we drew near to Jerusalem. You've been listening to Phil Metris read from his latest book, Shrapnel Maps. Even even before the explicit mention of Jerusalem in the second half of the second poem, even when we're just still with the tree and the two opposing desires of how it should be, I already feel like I'm in Israel, Palestine. I don't know if that's because of what I bring and what I know, but I, I think immediately of Israel having destroyed a half million trees over the last 20 years, some of them 700 to a 1,000 years old, and how the olive tree is a symbol of identity for Palestinians and also a huge part of their economy. Um, but also how American Jews mark life cycles, bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs, anniversaries or commemorations by having trees planted in Israel in honor of someone. But the irony being not that the tulip tree here, but that I think of this olive tree, the irony being the olive tree, the olive branch, the tree of peace. In, in the end feels, and even I think of that, um, that moment of uh, Yasser Arafat when he goes to the UN saying, I come with a gun and I come with an olive branch. And that olive branch doesn't, the complication of what that piece means, because the olive branch also means we are the olive branch and the olive branch coming from the land is us, the Palestinian people. I, I don't know if I'm overreaching as a reader. I guess I, I'm curious about how much the, the battle for the tree is, is meant to put us there. I think all of those valences that you mention are um, part, of, part of the picture and part of, um, part of my thinking and part of the context. There's also, of course, the, the story of the, Eden, the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? In the sense that somehow this space, uh, it seemingly is offering us everything, such plenty, and yet there's something that we can't have as well, um, and that kind of expels us. So scripture, political context, geography. I mean, the thing that you didn't mention was, of course, that... um, after the 1948 Declaration of Independence and the, the, the successful war for Israel's independence and, and the Nakba for Palestinians, 
that there would have been um, forests planted over some of the villages that were bulldozed that Palestinians lived. And so those those trees sort of covering villages, which is also a reference in the book. Um, I want I wanted that first the, that first poem, One Tree, as the first poem, because it speaks to the wider predicament of dealing with scarcity, um, dealing with the conflicts of needs and desires, which is not specific to Israel and Palestine. And I think that sometimes we get caught up in the sense that there's something absolutely unique about the predicament of Israelis and Palestinians. And I suppose that uh, there are plenty of ways in which it's quite particular and, and quite distinct. distinct. Um, and yet at the same time, what's happening there is what humans have always struggled with, which is how do we belong to each other and belong to the other and, and mark those different allegiances. What brought you to, to Palestine for the first time was the wedding of your sister which is what undergirds the second section, the epic poem, A Concordance of Leaves, which as a previous chapbook was a winner of the Arab American Book Award. So you, you went to Palestine as an adult for the first time. And I'm curious about the ways your visit either confirmed, contradicted, or rearranged what you had imagined as an Arab American growing up in the United States of what you were going to encounter versus what you actually encountered? It was an absolutely unforgettable experience. Um, and I had been thinking about it intensively ever since my sister had gone and came back with all of these stories. She had spent two summers at Birzeit University in Ramallah in the West Bank, where she actually met the man she would come to marry 10 years later. And the stories were so surprisingly um, not only provocative, but challenging of the views that maybe I, I would have had at the time. Or, you know, I, I grew up in a Roman Catholic tradition, a social justice tradition from the Jesuits, uh, interested in thinking about those who are marginalized and, and as such got an incredible education about the story, the stories of Jewish persecution and persistence and survival. And so hearing these stories from my sister, which kind of painted Israel as, um, as the, the dominating force that was sort of ruling and controlling life surprised me. And so I embarked on, you know, my own informal education as I was trying to understand what was happening. I think during the Persian Gulf War in 1991, I would have been a little bit more attuned to the ways in which um, the predicament of Palestinians was something that wasn't getting in the news, but, you know, it wasn't something that, that I had, you know, my parents are um, really thoughtful people. They taught me incredible values, but we didn't necessarily talk about the politics of the Middle East per se. You know, we were unable to go to Lebanon for my entire growing up because of the civil war. And so it was very much, even though we have cousins there, it was very far away. But that's what surprised me a little bit, like with the occupation of Southern Lebanon, 
and you being a Lebanese American, I would I would have imagined that there would have been some sense of Israel having a different role prior to going to Palestine, perhaps solely based on that. Is that that just those discussions weren't happening in your in your house about the Lebanon? Not that not that I remember, but this the invasion of um, the, the this you know Sabra and Shatil and the invasion of Lebanon nineteen eighty two would have been twelve, and so I was probably. <laughs> Right. Not really tuned in, yes. you know. Uh, my dad also was in the military. He was um, in the Navy Reserve at that at that time, and um, actively thinking about disaster preparedness and that sort of thing. But he would have been, you know, probably viewing a lot of things uh, in the Middle East also from that lens of his sense of um, U.S. interests. And yeah, it's 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 interesting that you mention that. But I have no memories yeah. of. Of of those those kind of discussions, I, I do have memories of, deep, of the deep sadness about not being able to visit and that sort of thing. Um, so then we were going in two thousand and three to celebrate this wedding, and the first thing I learned was my sister saying, "If you want to make getting through passport control easier, don't tell them that you're coming to a wedding in the West Bank in Palestine." <laughs> I said. Tell the uh, the you know the border control that you're uh, this we're in Ben Gurion Airport so we're in Tel Aviv. Tell them that you're going to visit the holy sites, you know your pilgrims. And it felt terrible to me as an upstanding <laughs> citizen, and uh, that that this would be something that I would need to do. But we did it, and we and the um, you know in every book about Palestine, you will read a story about Palestinians at border control. It's just part of the, the genre. It's just a subgenre of stories that Palestinians tell and people tell. Um, and, you know, there are obvious reasons why Israeli security at um, these checkpoints are is so, um, is so careful and so um, t- honestly terrifying it's it, it's really the the psychological dimension of it is is really scary, um, but we we got through okay. I just kind of felt horrible about that, and we got picked up. I think it was just my brother and I. Um, uh, we were picked up by a friend of the family and ended up driving to um, to to the little village Tura, and the driver got lost. And um, I remember, and this is in the this is in the poem. I remember thinking, like, I really have to go to the bathroom. And uh, I mean, this is just an aside, but this is a, this is the the lived experience, right? And I'm thinking, like, okay, so I don't want to be rude, but I ask, you know, is there is there like a rest area or something? He just laughed at me. I said, well, what what do people do if they you know have to go to the bathroom? He says, just go on the side of the road. And so I said, okay, I think I have to go. So he pulled up to the side of the road, and you know the the embankment is full of rocks, and then a barbed wire fence. And I'm thinking, this okay? Am I gonna lose my life urinating on a barbed wire fence because someone thinks I'm trying to cross some boundary? Yeah. And uh, everything was fine. It was just so funny. And I felt so like, I felt the intensity of um, the experience of precarity that I think a lot of people feel and have felt in spaces where not only where they, they don't know what um, what the rules are, but also the, that 
it's a heavily militarized kind of situation. And so that was just like the, the first, um, the first, I don't know, few hours of arriving. Other impressions, I think that the, the main impression I got from the, you know, witnessing the wedding in this village was the deep rootedness and joy of a family getting together for this occasion. I think something that happens a lot with activists working on an issue like, say, for Palestinian human rights, an image of the life of the people that they are trying to represent becomes contorted and gets sapped of the roundedness and the texture of lived experience. Um, I think that when people are called victims or when the narrative of victimhood is strong, it, it tends to to flatten out the real interesting ways in which people live. Just, you know, get on with the, the, the fact of living. And, and this happens in every war zone and in every country where there's injustice, including our own. It's thinking about all the laughter that um, some black friends have talked about during the pro these Black Lives Matter protests, that there's this also this, this great kind of catharsis of a feeling. And I think that, that that was one of the biggest impressions that I had coming away was um, the sense that not simply of, you know, the precarity of Palestinian existence, which is absolutely the case and, and, and more so than it was you know, almost 20 years ago, but also the kind of persistence of, and the sense of confidence and connection that that, that family had to that place. And that's not true for all Palestinians because many Palestinians are displaced internally, either in Israel or in the West Bank or in Gaza. Their families come from other villages, but that family I stayed with had been there for generations and, and had a kind of strength and it reminds me of what Franz Fanon said about, you know, the, the strength, the power of people comes from land. And this is one of his, I think this is from Wretched of the Earth. It's such a powerful um, kind of statement that as uh, settler colonial people, as we are here, <laughs> um, don't necessarily have that sense of how our identity and our and our strength comes from connection to place. I think it's a hard poem to excerpt, but I was hoping we could try anyways, just so people could hear a little bit of it. I was thinking maybe reading from 24 to 28. Happy to. So each of these sections are called, you know, warak, which just means leaf at the top. So I'll just say that word in between each section. So this is this poem celebrating this wedding. And um, I don't think there are any other notes to suggest to say here. I think it's all fairly self-explanatory. Because there is a word for love in this tongue that entwines two people as one. And there is a word for love in this tongue that nests in the chambers of the heart and a word for love in this tongue that wanders the earth, for love in this tongue in which you lose yourself in this tongue, and a word that carries sorrow within its vowels, and a word for love that exudes from your pores, and a word for love that shares its name with falling. Wadak. 
And though a careless assistant will enter the dark room unbidden and burn the wedding negatives, something larger than wave hovers and buoys us in its wake, large as the sun as it breaks into hills, as if coaxed by the singers to hold another's shoulder or hand off our hands to another and sway our branches and stamp the dear earth so hard it feels we are lifting together its trembling chest. Wadak. And having been warned to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, I, the undersigned, do hereby swear the sun-cured page of each tobacco leaf awaits to be crushed and burned into lungs. Each olive tree has a thousand eyes that ripen into sight, and the pomegranates of Tura are planets. Water. If to Bethlehem we must pass through Wadi al-Nar, if your license plates are painted blue and black, if your permit permits no passage across bypass highways, if from a distance the road carves alifs or alifs, if no man's land is where men live who have no land, if you lower your sun shield and block the hilltop settlement, if Wadi al-Nar is the valley of fire, if we must travel beneath the level of our eventual grave, if we arrive and they ask, how are you? We are to say, thank God. And listening to Phil Metris read from Shrapnel Maps. One of the things that people can't see when they hear you read this is that in between each line, there's what looks to be one end of a parenthetical. And I was curious about that mark and what it means to you. I, I spun out with my own theory, but I was, I, I was interested in what that is doing in the poem. Well, I'm sort of interested in what you had <laughs> uh, in mind. <laughs> well, I thought of it in terms of like one of the ways I feel like you can enter this collection is as an exercise in and an interrogation of framing. And I, I don't know if that open one-sided parenthetical that we get after every line in that epic poem is part of that or not. But I think about, for instance, the, that many of the sections of the book begin with an image of what appears to be an old tourist advertisement meant for Jews that's either idealized or sometimes orientalized and says simply visit or visit Palestine and so sometimes we'll have a section that will be about something very different than that image, but we're also aware that it, that, that section begins with that image, that that image meant to entice Jews to, to visit Palestine becomes a frame, an inescapable frame. Is that at all connected? Do you, do you feel like that characterization of your book is something about framing? Does that resonate with you as, as, as something you recognize in the project? Absolutely, 100%. Um, Mark Nowak, in one of his books, the first line is something like, the form is the frame. I think it might be that. But um, this sort of poetry and this sort of project is deeply invested in thinking about how we, how we come to tell the stories of, of this place or of any place and what 
in the process of telling a story, which is putting a frame around something, are we leaving out? What's on the margins of that? What's parenthetical to that? And so parentheses open and closed are, are part of our grammar of um, inclusion and exclusion, partial inclusion, right? <laughs> Have you ever had uh, been with someone who's read something? This, my students occasionally do this. They'll read, but they'll skip over the parenthetical mm. statements in a sentence. And I said, why are you skipping it over? It doesn't mean it's not important. It just means it's not as important. Um, and so, right, the parentheses is a sort of um, punctuation of prioritization and the sense of the openness of those um, those you know parentheses marks in this poem is an attempt to sort of like I think to pry open the sense about what's what's deprioritized and what's um, what's included and what's excluded. Um, it's such a lovely mark too i don't really understand it it's almost like the to me it also has an optical kind of aspect to it it's like the the lens of an eye you know um so it's it's it has different meanings for me and i, I don't want to you know just like impose them but I, what you said sounds precisely part of the picture yeah for a lot of the time i was reading Shrapnel maps, as we've discussed outside of this interview, I was working off of the galley, which you you warned me was going to be different than the final version, which I I did get in the last couple of weeks. But in the galley, this this wedding begins first with the Jewish visit postcard. Um, so the wedding in in Palestine is we have to enter the doorway through the Jewish visit. Uh, advertisement. But in the final version, it's a piece of art by a Palestinian artist called Remains. And it shows, it also feels like a form of framing the Palestinian woman's face and head. We see half of her face, but then in the other half of her face, instead of her face, we see uh, what looks to be a street scene of Arab men and women. And it's almost as if we're seeing into her mind or into her past and this is either what she's thinking or what she's remembering, or this is where she's come from. And I, I couldn't find anything by the artist Manal Deeb where she talks about this specifically, but she does say somewhere, my grandmother's house is all gone, but in my mind it's still there, which somehow feels related to me to this different form of framing, which feels like it's a framing of memory instead of a framing of imagination, like the, the Jewish, I mean, there is a memory aspect perhaps to the Jewish postcard, but it does feel more imaginative, like an imagined future rather than um, a more immediately remembered past of, of this Palestinian artist. But I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you around this and the framing is another thing that changes in the, from the galley to the final version is that these postcards, they change over time. They, the erasures that are being performed on them, the interrogation feel almost like another way you're interrogating framing. But also along with this, we get periodically these erasures of Mark Twain's book, Innocence Abroad. So I was hoping you could tell us about these erasures and more specifically, you could talk a little bit about why, why Innocence Abroad and why 
why that book in specific would be a relevant book to put in a book about Israel and Palestine. Well, I just really appreciate the care with which you brought to looking at the book, reading the book, looking at the images, because, um, you know, as, as a writer, that's all, that's all that we would hope for. And the fact of the matter is, you know, as you have already here observed, um, there's a lot of doctoring that's happening in, in some of these images. Uh, I, at the very, some of the very last things I was doing with the book was, uh, were in fact, um, learning how to, you know, use Photoshop to do this. And I, I think I didn't have an image for every, like a frontispiece image for every section. There are 10 sections in the book. And I just at some point decided that the images kind of had tailed off in the nearly final version of the book and that, um, that, that, that was silly. It was a lost, missed opportunity. And so I went back at the, and looked at the images again. These postcards that you note, um, tourist postcards that were actually done by, uh, I think I think a really talented, um, you know, Matt, a guy from the Mad Men era, you know, in New York doing uh, these um, wonderful um, images, these enticing images. I mean, if how could you not want to enter into them? You know, his name is Mitchell Loeb. This was done in 1947, um, a year before, of course, everything changed. Um, and I had a lot of fun just figuring out how to like remove things <laughs> from images. And all, all of which is to say, you know, to those who are listening, um, please just take a good close look at what's there and what's not there. It's, um, it was it was a lot of fun to do, and I was thinking about how I was engaging in a process of erasure, even as um, those images are projections which erase a certain kind of texture and complexity of of reality at the same time. So there are layers of there's palimpsests here of projections and erasures. I won't say much more than that, except except that. Um, I think that the book, one of the things that, that I hope the book is doing is demonstrating um, a kind of subjectivity which is um, complicit and aware of his own complicity in all manner of projections and erasures. And I think that that was really important for me to do. And I, I believe, um, although I'm sure that there are other ways to do it, I believe that what I wanted to try to do was to model a certain kind of engagement, of radical listening, but also radical self-evaluation and self-reflection as the kind of mediating force of the book, as the um, subjectivity through which all this is getting um, filtered. Does that mean the book is totally neutral? Does that mean the book is trying to please both sides? Probably not. Um, and my wife, my wife very wisely, um, you know, tries to get me not to do that. It was a role that I played very well in my family, the peacemaker. But, um, but I think that what it is trying to do is it is trying to engage um, in a radical project of listening and attention to the ways in which we hear and don't and can't hear 
um, the realities of other people. So as a segue to that, you asked about why I would have been um, choosing Mark Twain's Innocence Abroad as a, as a text to engage in redaction or blackouts with. Um, it's a rather notorious book for those who are who've read any Edward Said, uh, Twain's depictions of um, of the Middle East, and of course, you know, all manner of other places in his travelogue, Innocence Abroad, are, are well known. I mean, he he is not his best self in this book by any stretch of the imagination, to which one of my dear uh, friends and former students, Chris Kemp, said, you know, hey, we get it. He was uh, a product of his time. I don't understand why you're spending so much time with this. It's a, you're perseverating over it. You know, who cares really? Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I think that good erasures do and good poems that are engaging with other texts do is that they don't simply ironize or, or expose, you know, in some sort of Marxian false consciousness way, the ways in which people from the past didn't get it. Um, I wanted to show actually that Twain himself was very aware of the problem of representation, even while we can now say, of course, that his representation was charged in many ways, deeply orientalist. Um, the very first erasure is sort of a redaction is precisely about that. You know, there's this moment in which he says, and I've redacted here, but these are his words. Um, basically, I, I must... I can see easily I must unlearn a great many things concerning Palestine. I must begin a system of reduction. And this sense, this difficulty it is to reduce or to, um, and that, that's the process of framing mm -hmm. that, that kind of suddenly removes things from consideration that I'm, that I wanted to interrogate and not only interrogate, but that I wanted to consider, to put under consideration for myself and for others, um, knowing, knowing how easy it is when one is in pain and one has a, comes from a culture that has experienced great suffering to do that, how easy it is to see our own suffering and how hard it is to see the suffering of others. Well, in that light, I, I want to ask you, more about your portrayal of, of Jews and shrapnel maps and the, the presence of Jews in your life and art more broadly, because Jews are conspicuously present in your life before, long before shrapnel maps, not just you living in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. You're the translator of two Russian Jewish poets, Lev Rubinstein and Sergei Gondolevsky. You have an essay in your book, The Sound of Listening, about the docu-poetics and documentary poetry where you call Charles Reznikov and Muriel Rukeyser the founding father and mother of documentary poetry, and you nominate Allen Ginsberg as the court jester. So you've created a <laughs> you've created sort of a holy trinity of Jewish documentary poets. And and when we arrive at Shrapnel Maps, you could have certainly created a great poetry collection on Israel Palestine where Israeli Jews are portrayed throughout mainly as antagonists. But in this collection, Jews are portrayed in many different and contradictory ways. We get a broad, I don't think we get a neutral, I don't think you're, you're going for neutrality either. Like I don't think even close, but we do get a broad breadth of Jewish actions and beliefs presented. And all this made me think that there must be an ethos or a poetics behind all of this. 
which I think you've already nodded towards some and what we've discussed already, but in constructing, again, my own imagined narrative of why your life as an Arab-American Christian is so engaged with Jews, Jewish poets, and Judaism, I thought of a couple things. One was Padraig Otuma, the Irish poet and theologian who blurbed your book, has a saying, belonging creates and undoes us. And then I also thought of the Russian haiku you wrote in your collection, Pictures at an Exhibition, that goes, the Roma mother who mistook you for a son, you mistook for a Roma. And then mainly I thought of Fadi Judah's comments on a, a concordance of leaves, where he says, without other, there is no self, and that other is the stranger who must be loved. And I, I believe he's talking about the wedding being portrayed in the poem more than he's specifically talking about or necessarily talking about Jews. But nevertheless, I'd love to hear more about your engagement with the other or with the Jewish other in this case as a way of moving through the world and making art. Well, that's a lot, David. That is a lot. <laughs> oh my gosh, where to begin? Um, there's this sense, you know, you know, growing for me, growing up Catholic, that um, Jewishness was was special, was distinct, some in some way. Um, I mean, you don't need to go far to note the great contributions of. Jews to culture, medicine, politics, philosophy, religion. So um, I have great admiration for um, Jewish cultural life, Jewish poets, those those two Russian poets that you mentioned, Lev Rubinstein and Sergei Ganlevsky, they're just absolutely delightful humans as well as um, genius poets. Um, and of course, you know, growing up Catholic, you know, half the scripture we're reading is inherited. So we are connected. Um, we're kin. And uh, so that's always part of the picture um, from a sort of religious identity perspective. Uh, and I also became really aware of, you know, the uh, embedded kind of, for lack of any other term, anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish framing that's happening in, for example, the New Testament. So during the crucifixion of Jesus, um, the people are referred to as the Jews. And of course, okay, the Jews were the people, but why call them Jews? And this is because, of course, the scriptures were written 100 years later, and there was this great attempt, and by great I mean severe attempt, to, um, to distinguish early Christianity from Judaism. And that kind of uh, this fierceness of this cut or split is embedded in that scripture in ways that um, can easily be read as um, or, or mobilized in anti-Semitic ways. And this was before my time, but, you know, I'm aware that, you know, when my parents were growing up, that one of the epithets that Catholics would throw at um, Jewish, you know, kids on the street was that they were Christ killers. And that's because Partly, that's embedded in the scripture. And so being just really attentive and aware of this problem in, uh, in my own faith tradition and that kind of legacy of the church and its, you know, forced inquisitions and its 
um, persecution of Jews, you know, like there's such a history there. There's a great book called Constantine's Sword, among many others, that's dealing with the responsibility of the church uh, in its um, practices and ideologies of um, hatred of Jews or uh, anti-Semitism. So I almost feel like, um, you know, reading one of my dad's mentors was um, Victor Frankl, like knowing the the importance of, uh, um, you know, these Jewish thinkers and, and figures and knowing at the same time the ways in which my, the church to which I belonged and still belong has been um, part of the problem of history makes me kind of just really attuned to that. I don't know if that's answering your question exactly. No, I think it is. But, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I wanted to bring up something that you wrote about in The Sound of Listening that I wondered if it was related to the the way you portray Jews and shrapnel maps, but maybe it isn't. But either way, I want to I want to bring it into the conversation. Um, so you, I'm going to read two short quotes that you wrote. In light of the flurry of poetry activity constellating around the term resistance— we need more than ever to consider the possibilities and limits of resistance. After 25 years of thinking and practicing a poetics of resistance, I have found myself oddly resistant to the sudden talk of resistance, as if resistance were merely a matter of hashtags or opposing Trump. After all, there was plenty to resist during the Obama administration, drone strikes abroad, police killings of black people on the streets, Bashar al-Assad's massacre of civilians in Syria, bankers and predatory capitalists running amok around the globe, ongoing accrual of executive power, the buildup of a shadow security state. But these phenomena did not garner much widespread resistance. And then later you say something that I really love, and you say in, in this same piece, while I have always courted the idea of poetry as a rhetoric of resistance, I continue to return to the idea of poetry as fundamentally a kind of resistance itself, anti-rhetorical, a state anterior to positing, poetry as the ground of opening into the possible, a refuge. Part of this shift is Zizek's notion that resistance often can sustain the object of its critique. In other words, if our resistance is mere protest, it actually strengthens or even creates the system. I'm not entirely sure where I'm going, but the way in which I feel like this collection is not neutral is I feel like this collection is a critique of, of Israeli occupation. I feel like this collection is that, but at the same time, the resistance to the occupation that I feel like the book is enacting is also one that's trying to listen to the occupiers. I don't know if I'm reducing what you're what you're doing too much by saying that, but I would like to hear about your poetics of resistance in relationship or the limits of a poetics of resistance <laughs> and trying to create a poetics that's beyond a poetics of resistance. Yeah. Well, you, I don't know. You you, pro you probably being, you know, an interested person in culture um, watched The Wire yeah. at some point, or you know about The Wire. Uh, recently, The Wire was criticized by someone about, you know, its depiction of policing. And one of the things I loved about, and 
um, Wendell Pierce, who plays Bunk, uh, tweeted a really eloquent statement about how he saw actually police depicted as um, people, you know, flawed human beings caught in systems larger than themselves in which they find their humanity compromised and in which this is a paraphrase, but this is the way I understand it, in which they also perpetrate inhumanity. Um, it's, it's a Dickensian work in some ways, or maybe a Tolstoyan work. And it's actually, you know, Tolstoyan, Dostoevsky, and, you know, modern iterations that are able to kind of show us people situated in systems um, that are not always protecting them and not always protecting others. That, that, that's what, what interests me as an artist. I'm interested, for example, what happened in Sand Opera was something really similar. I started with, because my emotional taproot was reading the testimonies of the um, abused Iraqi prisoners. But that story was not complete if I didn't wrestle with and engage with and then also, in some respects, depict and account for the American military police who were either bystanders or um, perpetrators or, um, or whistleblowers. And so I think that something really similar kind of is happening in this book, Shrapnel Maps, which is to say um, it would be really easy for me simply to please uh, Palestinian human rights people and do a book that is doing that work. Um, but that's not going to help people wrestle with, and here's a word that gets us all into trouble, the complexities or complications of that predicament. Um, and I think good art I think art of the moral imagination is able to do that. Now, is that different than an art of resistance? I think it is, actually. It's a little bit different. Does it mean that there are ways in which this could be mobilized in a kind of resistance? Sure. Um, but things would be cut out. And there are poems that I don't think are great poems in this collection that are necessary because they offer another facet to this, you know, this picture. And um, there's more than one dimension of the picture. So I, I think that that was really important to me. And that doesn't mean, and that's partly because it accounts for my situatedness. I am not a Palestinian. I am not a Jew. I am a, in some ways, um, pro I'm proximate to, but I am not, um, part of, you know, other than say my taxes or something like that, or the, you know, my brother-in-law, I'm not really part of this. And I think one of the things that struck me most about the book, and I think as, you know, any artist, you want to be surprised by what you write. I think one of the things that surprised me was that I feel like my life is more aligned with um, the predicament of an Israeli person than it is a Palestinian person. And I think that probably a lot of activists have the same issue, but they don't want to see that. And that is to say, you know, people were pushed out of here, you know, 
like meaning America. Yeah. 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 And so just kind of recognizing that and coming to terms with that was really important to me. Um, I'm really, so there's kind of two sides of my personality and, um, and that, that's expressed in the quote that you read a deep passion for, um, not only resistance, but for moving in solidarity and allyship with people who are marginalized, who don't necessarily have the power that I may have given my position or standing in life. And also this attempt and desire to, um, to understand and imagine um, different positionalities um, that include me, that, that demonstrate my own complicity. And um, I, I hope that answers your question. I'm yeah, not sure it does. I think but... it does. Um, well, but I want to come back to what you mentioned at the beginning, this question of parallelisms um, and this question of how much space and in what way should Jews occupy in a book about Israel, Palestine. But before we do, I was hoping <laughs> you could talk about Ezra Nawi and then Rabbi Eric Asherman, who both have a presence in the book, and then read for us according to this midrash. I was literally just on a call with Rabbi Eric Asherman. There was some organization that was doing some support work for a family in this neighborhood in East Jerusalem that's kind of slowly being, um, for lack of a better term, you know, colonized. So Palestinians who've lived there for, say, 50 years or something are getting the their rights to their houses revoked because of a Jewish law that says if a Jew had lived in a place that, that, that it would, it would um, revert to or that it, it should be reclaimed by, um, for a Jewish uh, resident. Um, and he did some really great work. He's just a fascinating guy. He was one of the co-founders of Rabbis for Human Rights. He um, grounds his critique and his advocacy in his interpretation of um, Jewish scripture and his faith tradition. Um, I. Interestingly, I found myself not agreeing with certain kinds of framing devices he was using, but he knows his audience well. He was talking with a, um, one of the staffers for Robert Portman in Ohio, who's a Republican and, and deeply, deeply pro-Israel. Um, and so all credit to Rabbi Ark Asherman, who's done some really inc incredible work across, um, you know, across boundaries. And um, so that's that's him. And, and so there are these little portraits in the book of activists, both Jewish and uh, Palestinian, actually some Americans as well. Um, I thought it was really important to lift up some portraits of people who've engaged in acts of great courage, solidarity and bravery in really, really difficult situations and circumstances. Um, I particularly admired our Gosherman. There's also Ezra Nawi, who's this... Um, man who's actually gotten himself into a bit of trouble, which I, I you know, didn't realize <laughs> until um, the poem was published a few years ago. In any case, he is a brash and fascinating Jew from, I think his family is, he was Sephardic, maybe from Iraq. So he's Arab speaking, Arab identified. He's also queer. He's done some really um, courageous and, you know, bold 
uh, things like, you know, running into a house that's being demolished to try to stop the demolition and that sort of thing. So those are two figures who make their way into the book. Um, you know, sometimes you just read these stories about people and you just, at, at least I do, uh, my jaw drops and I think, what am I doing? You know, like, am I actually, you know, standing with those who need us most? Um, there's so much work to do in that way. Um, so I'd be happy to read the, according to this Midrash, this is one of the poems that I actually memorized yesterday for, um, for something called Station Hope here in Cleveland, which is an annual arts gathering to celebrate Cleveland artists and the, their, um, the work of social justice. Station Hope was kind of named after the church that was part of the Underground Railroad on the near west side in Ohio City. And that's where it usually is, it, the, the celebration is, but of course this year everything's online. So I spent the morning trying to memorize a few poems from the book. My daughter will attest that my memorization was not great. We had to do it a number of times, but this was one of the poems I wanted to memorize. And the reason I wanted to memorize it was that <clears throat> this was one of those poems where I felt like I learned something. So this is according to this Midrash for Rabbi R. Gosherman. Basically, the language is taken from an interview that he did. There might be some massaging of phrases in here and there. But the Midrash says, when Hagar and Ishmael are banished into the desert, before God builds a well, the angels cry, what are you doing? Don't you know the stories the Jewish people are going to suffer at the hands of the children of Ishmael? And God, according to this Midrash, says, right now, in front of me, there's a child. Right now, this child is innocent. Look, I know some Palestinians would want to kill me and my children. I know some Israelis do not see Palestinians as human and use the law to keep us separate. When I visit Palestinians, they waken their children to meet us in the caves where they live after their house was demolished. We sit on packed suitcases as they serve me tea. Their son, who'd been tied to a windshield by the army, and the man in a kippah who'd come to his aid. We've been listening to Phil Metris read from Shrapnel Maps. So I want to return to this, what you referenced at the beginning, this question of, of parallelism, of, or the question of how does one show both sides of a conflict without creating a false equivalency or a, a false sense of balance? Um, because there's, there's a lot of juxtaposition across the divide in your book. For instance, the book opens with two epigraphs, one by the Israeli poet Amichai and the other by the Palestinian poet Darwish. You have a series of poems that imagine a fictional suicide bombing, and two of the perspectives are a Palestinian named Mariam and a Jewish woman named Miriam. And this twinning, we could continue, I think, pretty easily all the way back to Isaac and Ishmael, which is, gets referenced in this poem. But but I'm I'm thinking of a series of posts you did on on Facebook on the anniversary of of the founding of the state of Israel, and then on the following day on the anniversary of what the Palestinians call the Nakba or the catastrophe. So in the second post, 
um, you talk about the 750,000 Palestinian refugees that were created and the 400 villages that were destroyed, many bulldozed, and as you mentioned, with trees planted over them, or the villages or cities where the houses remain but are now lived in by Jews. But in your first post, before people had seen that second post, you tried to put yourself in the mind of a Jewish person on the day of the founding of the State of Israel, where you say, for Israelis, it was the achievement of a long sought after dream. And you follow this with a parenthetical, which uh, can go back to our, our um, parentheses from before. The parenthetical being, for Palestinians, of course, it was a nightmare. More on that tomorrow. And then you post a poem you wrote about Yehuda Amachai, the Israeli poet. But you subsequently received some anguished responses from both Palestinian and Arab friends of yours. One called the post egregious for the repetition of the Zionist nation-building myth by referring to it as a dream, but also for equating the two sides of the conflict and thereby, in their mind, effectively engaging in the erasure of the weaker side. And another friend confessed that they were struggling with the post, that by calling it a dream fulfilled, it felt like the occupation was being normalized. And this person balked at how Palestinians were the parenthetical in the post. She ended by saying that if language is resistance, isn't it important to acknowledge that establishing Israel equals occupying Palestine? And I really, I admired your responses in the sense that they really recognized the pain of the people speaking these critiques and they were not defensive in any way that I could see. But I guess this was my long-winded attempt to ask you about your ethos and your considerations and deliberations when you're thinking about creating space for contradictory or opposing narratives to exist, perhaps for this notion of radical listening, but to not also then be... Um, enacting or suggesting that the peoples are standing on equal ground. Yeah, that was a sweat-inducing couple of days there, I have to say. Some dear friends, some a uh, couple Palestinian poet friends, um, and one, you know, Lebanese um, poet friend um, all took me to task roundly. Um, and... The poem, that poem, you know, for Amichai, I think says everything that I need to say, really, about the predicament, I think, that he found himself in. And in some ways that the Zionist project still finds itself in. Um, thank you for uh, reading those carefully. <laughs> and... Um, I think one of the things that was hardest for me about those sets of exchanges, and I haven't deleted them, I think I maybe modified one of them. I, th I don't know if it was around the word dream or one of the other aspects of it. Um, it was painful for me to recognize that that, that what I thought was fairly neutral um, language was received as somehow um, what was caused pain and was received as somehow um, unsupportive of people whose lives have been really hard. 
but this stuff is not easy, right? Yeah. I guess the only thing I would just say about it is that um, if I can't do it, why should I expect anybody else to? If I can't hold the space in my imagination and compassion for these really, you know, really different points of view, then why should I expect or hope that there could be any future where coexistence and a just peace is possible? So that's, that's the path. That's the practice that I've chosen. It's not for everybody. Um, but I, I, I want to, to make that. The word refuge, which is in the title of the book, The Sound of Listening, is to me really part of that picture. If we cannot create a space where people trust that their traditions, their families, their cultures, their stories will be respected and held with dignity and not under constant attack, you know, we'll never have peace and, and we will never have um, a future together. So that's it. I mean, um, I'm really, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to do, you know, is probably the impossible for this book, which to have the book be part of conversations. Um, probably I had more sleepless nights as this book was rounding into completion before publication than I've ever had in my life because I was aware of, you know, how controversial it would be to write a book like this. Um, you know, I have a colleague in my department who's an ardent Zionist who, for whom even this metaphor analogy that I kind of offer in the beginning of the book is, or, or any of the metaphors and analogies between, say, my encounters here in my neighborhood and what's happening in Israel and Palestine were, you know, was a, a road a step too far, was... In a, you know, inappropriate and, you know, absolutely not, um, not tenable. So um, I'm aware of this, this predicament, but I do want this book to be part of conversations, not endpoints um, of a conversation, but openings to conversations. Um, that's my hope. I mean, we have this really vibrant Jewish community, and not merely my Orthodox neighbors, of course, not only, but this incredibly powerful Maltz Museum, this inc really great Museum of Jewish Heritage here in Cleveland. Judith Butler came from this area. And who's the other scholar? <laughs> uh, just these amazing, this amazing tradition and people that, to me, for whom, you know, like, I, I consider them people that I want to be talking with and engaging in these conversations. Um, you know, on some level, my friend Fatty Judah, who you mentioned, you know, I showed him an earlier draft of the book and he said, you know, 
I'm not sure that I can comment on this book because it's not really written for me. And I think that there's some there's truth to that. You know, he doesn't need to read my book. But he's lived it, you know, his his parents were uh you know, made refugees twice in their life. Hopefully there won't be a third. Um so he's lived with trauma and um you know, it's for everybody else, I suppose, that maybe hasn't been in that state and situation. That's interesting. But it's painful. It's hard. Yeah. Could we, um, in light of that, talk about returning to Yaffa? Oh, sure. Which was your, your chapbook that is also part of this book, because it's dedicated to a Palestinian woman who, who visits your class often. And I would, I would love to hear about this sequence. I don't know how many years ago I first met Nahida Halabi Gordon. Um, I've learned since that time that her sister is a rather internationally known artist named Samia Halabi. And she was on a panel with a couple other people who were talking about different dimensions of the conflict, such as we might call it. And... The first few times I brought her into my class, she would do these kind of really deep dive history lessons, and then not don't, and then she wouldn't really talk about her own um, her own life. And the the kids would be honestly bored. I mean, I find it interesting, you know, like what's happening in 1916, and then you know, like, you know, what's what does the Ottoman land reform have to do with what happened after that sort of thing? But you know, that that's just for people geeking out on on um, sort of the, the deep dive of history. But then she started to tell a little bit about her own story. And she was born in Jerusalem and grew up in Jaffa and Jaffa um, and was part of the expulsion exodus of Palestinians who left. Um, so a couple things that really kind of just blew me away were um, a document that she shared with us that was circulated by the Haganah in the day before or two days before the Declaration of the Founding of the State of Israel, which basically asked, you know, men to gather at the center of town and um, and also the municipal documents uh, to be kind of secured so that future land claims can be established. And this document uh, it's just fascinating because of what happened afterwards, which is that this municipal register of public documents disappeared. And that just haunted me, this sense of, you know, what happens to, to peoples in, in, in situations of war when they're, they're, you know, people want to get rid of them. So there was this kind of historical and political dimension that was embedded in this document um, that was deeply impactful for her own story and predicament as she's shared, you know, the trauma of seeing her father come in after, after a bombing, um, just covered with, with dust. Um, I can't remember what the explosion was. It's the town center on January 4th. We could certainly look it up. But the ways in which this kind of large narration, which had very little for me in the way of personal or lived exemplars suddenly became very specific, which is to say 
became her story. It's amazing how 70 years later, you know, coming to my class, she would still be reduced to tears telling this story. This was a this is an incredibly accomplished woman, a PhD in I don't know if it's chemistry or some kind of advanced science, something I know nothing about, uh, who has lived a very good life here and has, you know, family and children, yet nonetheless has a sort of primal wound experience. And I just wanted to honor in some way this relationship and um, to tell her story in a, in a way that, um, that we could experience what it might feel like or might look like on the level of a nine-year-old who has to leave with her family. I mean, the, the other just aside that I would just say about it is that um, I learned in the process of doing more research on Jaffa or Yaffa that it was supposed to be part of a future Palestinian state when the 1947 UN partition plan was proposed. But if you look at the maps, it's absolutely bananas, you know, like Yaffa is nowhere close to the rest of the contiguous land that would have been offered in that partition plan. And it was the biggest city by far, our majority city, of course, um, Jerusalem and uh, Tel Aviv were Jewish majority cities. And uh, so it's just, I don't know, there's just so many dimensions of it that just fascinated me and haunted me. And um, I just wanted her story as part of this. I know this isn't part of that section, but I was hoping you could orient us to and, and read us Ismail and Abla to Ahmed, their son. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm trying to figure out a good way of segueing between these things. But um, I think Nahida has taught me, you know, she has this book where she did all of these interviews of Palestinians. She feels her own privilege relative to some others. Um, she taught, taught me that, um, how important it is to carry other people's stories and to become, and to embody, uh, the future that you want to see. And I think that in some powerful way, Smile and, uh, Abla and what they did when their son was killed in a shooting by, um, the IDF, essentially kind of a police shooting. I mean, if we're going to put it back in our American context, where he was perceived as a danger in our in, in our own city here, Tamir Rice getting shot with a toy gun um, some years ago. Ismail and Abla to Ahmed, their son. Your body full of fragments, harrowed was thy brain, spilled over your clothes, you already not of this world, in the shadow of our difficult, we plant your heart inside, a teenaged girl you will never touch, liver we bury, in a baby you will never raise, elderly you'll never be, kidneys we resettle in alien skin, your lungs now breathe for two who could not breathe without you. We know your toy gun looked death in the eye, but why did they have to shoot you twice? And now inside, quote, the enemy, you rise behind the lines of inside. You live and see for yourself what none of us can see, ourselves, ourselves from the outside. 
been listening to Phil Metris read from Shrapnel Maps. I think one thing you didn't mention that's that captured the imagination because I read a lot about this incident after reading this poem, which is an incredibly powerful poem, was that they donated their son's organs and four of the people who received the organs were Israeli people. And when I was looking into it, it made me think a lot about the, your writing on the poetics of resistance because on the one hand, the Israeli leaders were stunned by the act of these parents whose child was killed by the Israeli defense forces. And they called it this remarkable gesture of peace and a bridge between the communities. And the deputy prime minister at the time called the family to praise the quote unquote noble gesture and the Israeli parliament praised the family for its remarkable humanity. But it's what the mother says in response that struck me, uh, that contrary to the Israeli embrace of her gesture as an act of peace, that she saw it as an act of resistance. Um, in her words, she said, to give away his organs was a different kind of resistance. Violence against violence is worthless, Maybe this will reach the ears of the whole world so they can distinguish between just and unjust. Maybe the Israelis will think of us differently. Maybe just one Israeli will decide not to shoot. And then similarly, similarly the leader of the Al-Aqsa Brigade adds, this kind of action is a form of resistance. Six Israelis have a part of a Palestinian in them and we don't think those people would come to kill a Palestinian person. And I don't think their family members would kill a Palestinian child. And this, I don't know, those those statements in your poem, I feel like are going to haunt me for, for a very long time. <laughs> because I feel like in a way, this portrays the imbalance of the scales of the two sides more than anything could. That That this gesture is being done out of almost a desperation that being seen from the other side and animated by these donated organs that these people would see the humanity and where the organs came from. Yeah. Yes. Um, an outlandish act of love really. Um, but interestingly, I mean, one of the difficulties of being human in situations of, for lack of a better term, violence and injustice is that your, your, your particular tragedy gets um, mobilized as a kind of um, political act always. And so it's always hard to know precisely how one feels because these narratives are so powerful. I think it's in Kafka toward a minor literature that Deleuze and Guattari talk about the way in which in a minor literature, the political always stains, you know, the, the light, the present always stains, the uh, stains, that is to say, marks indelibly the predicament of the, the minority, the, the marginalized. And, um, you know, I think that there's a there's a there's a keen sadness in that. I think one of the most painful things for Palestinians and in particular is that um, their humanity even gets lost in the story of 
they're seeking their own human rights. Can we take that question of Palestinian humanity into the American setting as a as a teacher? Because one might imagine that like the academic world would be the the place where you one might most be able to achieve a space where um, these narratives could be put forth and judged on their merits. But in a lot of ways in America, that's the most politicized space. There are a lot of um, advocacy groups and think tanks and legal actions and threats of legal actions that almost de facto make the speaking of and teaching of the Palestinian narrative a de facto anti-Semitic act or an attempt to make it an anti-Semitic act that the stories being told have caused the cancellation of student groups or some teachers have lost tenure. Um, other people have had their like names posted on um, websites as being anti-Semites. Anti I, I'm curious, I wonder if you're shielded from that at all being in a Jesuit school or perhaps maybe not having uh, a student body that would be full of Jews and, and Muslims, or whether you experience that sort of institutional pressure as somebody who's had a long-term dedication to teaching the literatures of both people as a way to look at the um, radical listening between them. I began teaching my course in 2006, probably because of my experience going there. And it just became impossible not to try to figure out some way of contributing to, at the very minimum, a raising of consciousness and education and engagement. Um, and, you know, I'm currently this director of this program, the Peace, Justice and Human Rights Program. This is really like at the heart of what I'm trying to, to do in, in the classroom and in my scholarship and, in, and also in some respects in my, in my writing. Um, but I, I will say that in 2006, could it have been maybe the after the first semester I taught the course that I had posted some material about the class and what it's trying to do and some of its goals and uh, texts and resources and stuff like that. And um, a member of the community um, asked me some questions about it. And she was coming from a fairly ardent Zionist perspective. And I said, oh, I'd love to have you come into the class because, you know, I think that one of the things the class is trying to do is really expose students to really, you know, really different ways of thinking about and framing the story. She said, I'm sorry, I can't come into your class because I don't believe the Palestinians are a people. And, um, you know, that, that kind of, uh, you know, stopped our conversation a little bit. Then she started sending me all uh, a series of emails, like a number of emails, like I don't know, half a dozen within a few hours about, you know, things that she thought maybe I didn't know or um, wish to inform me about. And after a certain number of them, I think I got frustrated. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, I, I just, I can't, you know, I can't engage with this conversation. <laughs> I said something that I regret, which was, I wish you well, but, but not your racism. And this set her off 
and uh, she wrote letters to every member of the uh, administration and telling that I was preaching hatred toward the Jewish people and um, that sort of thing. And this was, I think what was hardest for me was not actually that she contacted all the people, but that I really wanted to take seriously what she was saying and um, look very carefully at um, whether my course was fair, was doing what I said it was doing. And, um, you know, everyone in my department and at the dean level, everyone supported me. And she went off to, you know, other harangues. But uh, that, I, that, that was that in a way. But I'm sharing that with you just to say that there are consequences to even trying to teach the conflicts, as Gerald Graff called it in this sort of, you know, liberal way. But for me, it was, it was and continues to be very important to, to be teaching both. And it's an impossibility, really, to do it any justice. There's no way that anybody can get a sense of the, the true breadth and um, complexity of you know, Israeli literatures and cultures and politics and history and Palestinian literatures, cultures and politics and history. So I'm, I'm mostly focused on the, the places where they are intersecting and sort of are actively engaged with each other. But I'm, you know, as I mentioned before, I'm, you know, when I hear people, for example, in England and say the London Guardian or something talk about the Israeli and Palestinian issue, I'm uncomfortable with I don't know, some of the ways in which they talk about it. And it's not that, you know, I, I don't entertain a kind of leftist critique and that sort of thing. But I think anti-Semitism is something that I want to always, like on the first day of class, we talk about anti-Semitism and Orientalism. We start with a thoroughgoing um, uh, in just realization and um, that one of the difficulties of teaching this material and one of the difficulties of engaging this material is to know and recognize that both peoples that are sort of under consideration here have been demonized um, both in word and in deed. And that's that has to be part of our ethos moving forward, that we will recognize the fact of these kinds of racisms and prejudice and uh, to account for them as we move forward and to um, to just try to tread carefully, and not not in any sort of like politically correct way, actually, but to just to understand that the stakes are very high. I've had many arguments with students about this kind of stuff. You know, I think actually when I started teaching a class, the passive student who would come through my class would have been more tuned into a sort of Israeli narrative, probably two thirds, one thirds. And now it's probably almost reversed. Mm. And um, I don't know what that means, but I just want to be, my job as a pedagogue is really, not really different, but it's different than my job as an artist. But in a way, this book does come out of the teaching of that material as much as anything else. And um, wanting to invite people into this journey where we can never reduce um anyone to a mere story and certainly not a story that they wouldn't recognize um, utterly about themselves.
you know, I think that that's, so, I don't know, again, a long, a long <laughs> answer, but. Um, can, can you take this, this question of framing and fairness and balance into the way you're looking at maps and you could talk maybe a little bit about why you're choosing these maps from the 15th to the 18th century to grapple with in, in shrapnel maps? What, what is like, for instance, why, why do we have an engagement with, I don't know if I'm pronouncing their names right, but Michael Servetus's map and Adam Reisner's map, among other things. We also have the fill in the blank map that your daughter gets from school of biblical Israel being engaged and troubled. But um, <laughs> what's, what's going on with, what's going on with, maps of the Holy Land starting around the 15th century? You know, I cannot remember the initiating reason why I got obsessed with maps um, of this place, the place, <laughs> or a place. Um, but I can tell you that we have bought a, a garage sale map um, that was from this period as well. And I was fascinated by it. And um, it was probably because I was looking at that really carefully and just started to, to go crazy with maps. It turns out, of course, that this is, you know, geography is one of these really central um, kind of terms in Edward Said, you know, imaginative geographies and that sort of thing. I think it was, again, an attempt to make sense of the ways in which place gets um, displaced by projections and that sort of thing. I mean, maps are so fascinating because they're developing, you know, interestingly by Jesuit cartographers, <laughs> um, among other things, uh, among other people, to engage in this project of discovery slash, you know, colonial advent, you know, and imperial adventuring. And so, like, really embedded in the project of you know, cartography is about, is the, you know, are, are, is the procedure of control, are the um, activities of, you know, empire and colonialism. And I think that what struck me as well, in addition to thinking about those things, is how the imagination of this space as a kind of birthplace of Jesus becomes a fixation as well for a kind of Christian Zionism, which is part of the story of, um, of the movement of Zionism, which is, you know, how does the Balfour Declaration and the British support of founding a state for the Jewish people come about? And I think it's partly Christians who have this feeling about Zion, which is um, from hundreds and hundreds of years of thinking about that space and, you know, the Crusades, of course, and everything else. Maps are propositions and impositions as much as descriptions, and just thinking a lot about that. Um, yeah, they're frames too, right? Yeah. I wanted to maybe push on this question of maps in a larger sense for your work also, because and maybe the way they relate to formal and aesthetic choices as a poet. Um, for instance, you said, my desire in sand opera is to make the Iraq war and the wider war on terror visible, to make a visible and audible map of it, a map that we 
would carry in our eyes and ears, in our bodies and hearts, to replace the maps of pundits and demagogues. And you also have essays in The Sound of Listening titled Carrying Continents in Our Eyes and at the Borders of Our Tongue. And when I think about maps as something that we carry in our bodies or as continents in our eyes, I also think of the introduction by Catherine Wagner to your translations of the Russian conceptualist poet Lev Rubinstein, where she talks about the Soviet-era communal apartments where people had only eight square feet per person and no privacy, and thus any conversations that happened in this space were surveilled and a collective monologue of sorts that was safe and sanctioned, and that this poet that you translated was working against this sanctioned collective monologue. And Wagner seems to suggest that the physical structure, so the apartment itself, the way it is constructed and mapped out and then inhabited is behind the uh, b- behind his approach as a poet. And this is what Rubinstein himself said. For me, the problem of the center of gravity is essential. Traditional consciousness places the center of gravity within the boundaries of the text and considers it the artist's weakness if the center of gravity leaves these boundaries. From here arises as a consequence an extra-temporal and extra-spatial relation to the objects of art. For me, the artistic text is important and interesting as both the cause and effect of conversation, as the optimal realization of dialogical consciousness. Here, the center of gravity is always somewhere between the author, text, and reader. Thus, for me, non-traditional artistic consciousness is dialogical, while traditional consciousness is monological. And just made me think of of you and radical listening and maybe of radical listening as being some sort of engagement with borders. This is, again, a simplification of uh, a great complexity, but um, there's this interesting kind of sensory binary between sight and, uh, you know, sound, and um, the map being a sort of this dominance um, register our sight. You know, it's so funny being human, you know, like with our knowing that our eyes are in the front of our head means we're predators by in the animal kingdom, right? Um, but our listening is, you know, is spread out, you know, on both sides of us, probably also because, you know, we were also prey at one point. Um, and, uh, you know, I was trying to find on my very first book, I talked about how cognitive mapping, Jameson's concept of cognitive mapping was, um, I thought, really central to what my practice was as a writer and artist, which is an attempt to kind of locate myself in in a set of systems and geographies that um, precede me and sort of move through me in some way. Um, Of course, his, his theorization of cognitive mapping has to do with kind of registering the the, the layer of capital that sometimes we don't really talk about, the layer of, you know, the economic connections that we have that are constantly being effaced and, and suppressed. Uh, but I was, there was something about this term mapping that was really interesting to me that kind of came to me as I was finishing my first book. Then you were talking about, um, I, I missed one connection point. What was the other 
Oh, Rubenstein. Yeah, well, let me add this idea of dialogical consciousness. Oh, right, right. And okay. then I was also like, I'll just add another thing in just to complicate things even more. So like when you were talking with Micah Cavallari about Abu Ghraib Arias, you said the work of grassroots peace building is fundamentally about relationship and the situation of war constantly ossifies our identities as national beings. And that's when I was thinking about like Rubenstein's dialogical consciousness rather than a communal monologue, which might be a tribal monologue. Or maybe what you're doing is working against this notion of the ossified national being, like working against the bordering of a being by a nation state, ultimately. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I was thinking about those things with your maps, your erasures, and this notion of radical listening possibly being something that could get us to step out of a bordered or an identification with, with solely based on a national interest. You know, when I think of Rubinstein and the dialogic, he's, of course, you know, hearkening back to Bakhtin and, um, for Bakhtin, Dostoevsky is the exemplar. And what's so cool about Dostoevsky and, and what Rubinstein is inviting and asking for is this sense that somehow the work of art, text, maybe text and context more for Rubinstein, which is to say, instead of saying the work of art needs to contain the whole of that, all of the, the perspectives, debates, dimensions of life that Dostoevsky tries to do, tries to put, say, for example, in the Brothers Karamazov, um, for Rubinstein, I think it's almost like the text and context, or that's the text and the reader as well. I feel I have this similar kind of hope and desire that, that the work itself can model a dialogical way of being in the world, and then can be activated in dialogue, actual dialogue with people who, for whom, you know, passport um, and identity um, are part of, but not ultimately, you know, defining a person and, and how they how they belong. I mean, that's it's the big tricky thing in, in the world is that the nation state is the, for lack of a better institution, the guarantor of of most individuals' rights in the world. And so it's a sort of like, um, it, it's, it's something we haven't been able to kind of get, get around as human beings, because, you know, on a smaller scale, it seems to be harder to have those guarantees uh, met and registered. And at a larger scale, that people have resisted that. In fact, you know, the Trump kind of um, and Brexit movements have been all about the, re the rejection of cosmopolitanism or the rejection, I shouldn't say cosmopolitanism, but the rejection of, you know, globalism without, um, without a cultural change, you know, globalism really in the service of the wealthy. Um, so uh, I, I would say that that is part of my project. You know, it's partly like, it's this weird thing. You know, I don't know how you felt growing up, but I felt particularly after the Gulf War, I didn't feel like I was American. I felt like I was an alien, um, just kind of happened to be here. And, you know, I can, I can talk passionately about the promise and the possibility of the Constitution and of our, you know, democratic um, institutions, but some part of me just 
sees its failure all the time mm. and can never be on on the on the cheerleading team yeah um and so that, that I don't know why that is. It's just been part of me since the beginning of my coming in, into my own. Um, and and I don't have answers like on that big level. How do we guarantee, you know, the safety and the rights of people? And I just know that I can see the limits of, of the way we've organized ourselves. And, try you know, this thing about tribe, you know, like, the tribe was the the guarantor of safety for people and a, and a sense of connection and belonging, but it was also um, the place where people got expelled. I'd like to, as we as we come to a close, I, I want to return to Amichai, the Israeli poet, and you you said that one of the things that you you felt like most answered the the anguish and critiques of some of the people who read your Facebook posts was just the poem itself, the heart of a nation and what it says. And you've, you've called Amichai, if not the greatest Israeli poet, one of the great Israeli poets and one who speaks in a way that you describe as surpassing the boundaries of national identity. And I mean, I think of the poem wild peace, which is the, a former soldier speaking imagining a piece that is beyond description. It's not a biblically ordained piece. It's not a tribal piece. It's not a political piece. It's not a ceasefire. It's a wild piece. But you've also expressed your ambivalence about him because he fought in the War of Independence, the Nakba, the catastrophe that dispossessed Palestinians from their homes. And he also fought in a couple more wars, I'm pretty sure, in the 60s and 70s. I'd lo- love to have you end by reading The Heart of a Nation, the poem that you you mentioned that is near the end of the book, and then also a poem that you dedicated to Fadi Judah Istud. But before we do, I guess I wanted to I, I wanted to ask the question, which maybe doesn't have an answer, but does Amichai's transnational poems, poems that sort of um, reach across uh, boundaries of an ossified national identity and acknowledge maybe that what has been gained through those victories that he fought in, what he describes as a hard and trampled victory rather than one that would seem fertile and, and uh, dynamic. Um, does him being a soldier in those wars, does that make those poems more remarkable or does that um, compromise or diminish them? And I'm not sure that there, I mean, maybe the answer is yes and yes. Um, I'd, <laughs> I don't know, but I didn't know if you had thoughts. Maybe I'll read the poem and then talk a little bit about. So one thing I would just say, my, my Heart Like a Nation is a poem that refers to at least five Amakai poems, which, um, which I found particularly fascinating and, you know, worth thinking about. Um, so my heart like a nation for Yehuda Amichai. You threw off your exile by clothing yourself in praise, Yehuda, saying, my nation is alive, Amichai, in me, inhabiting your own body, your mother beloved skin. I'm hairy like you and afraid like you. I'm half animal and half angel, uncertain where my tenderness ends and cruelty begins. We did what we had to do, you wrote, 
which in translation reads, um, Yehuda, I want your clarity to love you, not close the gates of my heart like a nation trying to make itself a home, but winding up with a state. Psalmist, you spoke so tenderly of peace, but the war persists. All I have for you is this poem. A man photographs the sudden undulating hills. Behind him, a woman he loves now dreams that their bed's legs grow roots beneath overnight and spread a canopy of branches that shoot pink blooms open and open, now green with shushing leaves that shelter and shadow the rucked bedsheets, the branches burdened with red apples, apples like eyes ready to be praised and plucked. There's such warmth and sensuality to Amikai's voice in so many of his poems. Um, the humanness of the voice of Amikai as a poet is really stunning, remarkable, beautiful, um, unforgettable. I think, you know, if you read his poems very carefully, the figure of the other, the Arab, is often one of absence or of a sort of orientalized shepherd or something like that, a Bedouin. Um, and so there's something kind of amazing to me and poignant about a poet whose work is so expansive in its humanness and yet also has this kind of limit. I don't know if it's an epistemological limit, an ideological limit, uh, a blind spot, an incapacity. And so for me, I guess Yehuna is just a human being, yeah. you know? And, uh, you know, I, I think I will push back on the earlier thing that I said about his being a transnational poet. I think there's a way in which, you know, when he, he's a, he's a national poet. Um, and sometimes he sees the limits of that nationalism. You know, there's this great poem called Jerusalem in which he says that he sees flags and other, you know, his flag and then other people's flags. And there's some line in it where he says something like, you know, you know, they fly them to make us think they're happy and we fly them to make them think we're happy, which means that they're not happy, that he recognizes the kind of tragedy in that. Um, I think I think I was thinking a lot about how it was not only Amikai's participation in the war, which would make sense. I mean, he would want to secure um, the safety of the land that he found himself in, the safety of his for his for his people, but the fact of this inability to kind of get past and to see um, these others, I think that 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 is the tragedy. And in some sense, is the tragedy of a certain um, a certain kind of Zionism. You know, to me, Darwish is a much more internationalist poet. But look at the life he had to lead. It's sort of like um, uh, there's something about the predicament of the refugee which um, invites a kind of cosmopolitanism. I hope that doesn't sound too overdetermined, but if I were to one of, if I were to pick one of the poets 
as the cosmopolitan poet, I would say, was Darwish, who sort of sees even the limits of Palestinian nationalism as he's, as it's kind of moving forward, and 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 stops sort of, you know, doesn't want to be th thought of as the Palestinian voice. Um, it would be interesting to do a deep dive to see if Amichai's relationship to Israel as a place and as an imagination and as a home um, changes over time. And I haven't I haven't looked at it that closely. And I imagine that there probably is some change, but um, I particularly wanted to have this conversation with him because I recognize the beauty and strength of his work and also um, see, see, see some limit in it. Well, I wanted to ask you one question about this poem in relationship to the galley also. There's a point when you read the poem when you hummed and you were humming over a redaction. So in, in the galley... So in, in, in the version you read, it goes, we did what we had to do, you wrote, which in translation reads redaction. Like there's a big black box. But in the galley, it read, we did what we had to do, you wrote, which in translation reads exile. So why did I do that? Why did I change it? Uh... I mean, I'm just curious. I'm curious about it. Like that's fascinating to me. I mean, that's fascinating to me also about the ambivalence of Amachai, like that I could almost imagine it being him who redacts it. Like, so he <laughs> he puts the word exile in and then redacts exile. We did what we had to do, which is translated as blank. But the first thing that comes to mind is exile. I mean, no. I mean, it's not fair that I'm I'm quizzing you on a version that no one sees, but, um, <laughs> but I'm fascinated by the the inclusion and then the occlusion. I think for me, exile seemed too simplistic, and I wanted, you know, in a book that has after you know sand opera being sort of filthy with redactions and in blackouts. Uh, I think I thought at the very end of this book, maybe there's just be one in here to make to invite us to think about, you know, what's not being, uh, what's not allowed to be said. Um, so exile is what what happened, you know. And I, I like your reading of it quite a bit, like the cross out of exile. Um, but I think I wanted to point out this pain of what maybe he wasn't able to write. Are you up for reading "Is Dude" as a as a final poem? I do want to read this poem because it is, in, you know, it's, it was Fatty, you know, who said it's not just the war. It's his this Paris Review interview, Yehuda Amichai, when he talks about these kids throwing stones during the Intifada, and he talks about them. Amichai sees them as. Um, in the register of sort of Nazi anti-Semites. And he said, even in that parallelism, he, there's an inability to see why these kids are throwing stones. Um, and so, yeah. And, but that, that again, speaks to the, you know, what we generally call the prism of pain, you know, for Amichai and for, you know, in the Zionist imagination, the prism of pain is these hundreds of years of persecution and persistence of survival. And um, I think Amos Oz 
Oz, you know, once famously said something like, you know, every Israeli looks at a Palestinian as if maybe if he squints, he might be a Nazi. And every Palestinian looks at every Israeli and squints and imagine that they're, you know, the, the most recent colonizer. And there's this way in which that history kind of gets projected onto the present reality. So Isdud is for Fatty Judah. Fatty's family came from Isdud, which is um, a village which is mostly destroyed now, although there's some remnants. And uh, the, the Israeli city of Ashdod is approximate to it at, at present. Uh, Fadi is a wonderful poet and translator of Darwish and Zaktan and many others. And he's also just, um, just a really profound and, and delicate thinker. He's also a bit of a provocateur, but that's not in the poem. I mean, for me, like he's always like, you know, telling me how I'm wrong. <laughs> Bless him. Is dude for Fatty Judah. Dear descendant of the disappeared, you ascend the pillar of your own air, spin and span whole abysses with lines translating there to here and here to where wind winds in dry waddies, hoists sea in handful after invisible handful is due to now your email address and digital image of branches through windows within school ruins. A refugee points with his cane to what he only can see. You argue against the argument against yourself. You yourself make and home in. Kiss my blind eyes clear, close keyholes with opening homeland. You cradle and vowels what was not never yours. I'll hold it here till you return. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Phil. Thank you so much, David. It's been great. You're, you're an incredible reader and a, a gracious host. We've been talking today to the poet, essayist, and translator Philip Metris about his latest book from Copper Canyon Press, Shrapnel Maps. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Philip Metris's work at philipmetris.com. Metris adds a generous contribution to the bonus audio archive, a reading of five of his poems that predate shrapnel maps, and three of his translations of poems by the Russian poets Arseny Tarkovsky, Lev Rubinstein, and Sergei Gondolevsky. This joins bonus material from Hanif Abdurraqib, Marlon James, Christina Rivera Garza, Lely Longsoldier, N.K. Jemison, Richard Powers, Garth Greenwell, and many others. To check out the bonus material and to find out the other benefits of becoming a listener supporter of the show, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who tirelessly helped make the show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity and Lance Cleland 
the director of the Unmatchable Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.